Would you open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 2? And Acts chapter 2, we're going to be talking about a, <clears throat> a very important commemorative day called Pentecost. And as you're turning there, I want you to think about uh, things that you commemorate in your life. might be an anniversary or... Uh, something that you regularly do as a family. A lot of times that sort of commemoration involves us looking back on something. So an anniversary, obviously if you're celebrating a wedding anniversary, you're looking back on the day you got married. You're looking back on this previous year of marriage. If you wanted to do something really special on on a wedding anniversary, you know, a very romantic husband might find the restaurant that you first dated and order what you first ate. or You know, you see that stuff in the movies. Uh, if I were to take my wife where we first dated, it would be the charcoal pit behind Pike Creek Bowling Alley, which is <laughs> gone. It makes you feel old when the place you first dated has been torn down. Uh, but we would have sat in a booth Uh, and they used to have these little jukeboxes there, and I would have played the Duke of Earl for her (laughs) as our first date. But you see how, if I were to do that now, you know, 20-some years later, if I were to take her there and do that, if such a thing were possible, I would be edifying the present by hearkening to the past. I'd be bringing something back from a long, long time ago, bringing it up to the surface. And that effort, that effort sort of revives. It it has meaning. And in, uh, in the Hebrew culture, they had three really big festivals each year that did this. They were th- three times uh, a year where they would gather together together uh, and they would remember what God has done. They would reflect on what he's done, and they would bring, bring up from way back, from a 1,000 years back, 1,500 years back, they'd bring up to the surface uh, the experiences and the songs and the story and the food and, and the aromas of, of a, what God had done in a bygone era. And they would gain a lot of meaning out of that. It's the act of reflection. Passover was this way. Passover is a great example of remembering. Passover was celebrated when God had rescued the people from Egypt and brought them across the Red Sea. The Passover lamb with the blood on the door frames which protected the people from uh, the visitation of death that came to Egypt. Every year they would uh, serve a Passover meal, and every year they would reflect upon how God had saved them. It's that reflection. But then we get to the life of Christ, and something something happens to this reflection. The Lord tampers with it. He does something to it. At the Last Supper, when the Lord's in the upper room, and he says, this is my body which is given to you, and 
this blood is the blood of the new covenant. And when he refers to himself as, or when the scriptures refer to him, and we can make the connection that he's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. Or when we see in Revelation that he's the lamb sitting upon the throne. In those moments when we, when we recognize that he's placing himself into a feast or a moment that an anniversary that has for a thousand years looked backwards, all of a sudden Jesus is inserting himself into it. Something happens. Passover used to mean something by looking back at what God had done. But now with Jesus inserting himself into Passover, now when you read the Bible, you realize that God has always been anticipating Jesus. What we used to do with reflection now serves the role of projection. We realize there's been an anticipation of the Lord throughout the telling of Scripture that only now is arriving at its fullness at Jesus. There are these times in the Scriptures where a thousand years of reflection in a moment is repurposed. And we realize now in the ministry of Christ or today in the ministry of the Holy Spirit is the first time it's ever fully been celebrated. And the Hebrew people, the Jewish faith has been waiting for this day the whole time. And Pentecost is one of these days. Acts chapter 2 is the story of the day of Pentecost which was a Jewish holiday. It was one of the three big holidays. So you had Passover, you had Pentecost, and you had the Day of Atonement, which would come towards the end of the year. And Pentecost was known by several names. The Greek name for it was Pentecost. And all that Pentecost means is 50th. The 50th, like Pentagon, Pentagram, Pentecost, 50th. Because the Pentecost the festival takes place exactly 50 days after Passover. So on the 50th day after Passover is the Hebrew language would be the festival of the first fruits or the festival of weeks. They had several names for it. They call it the festival of weeks because 50 days is seven weeks, seven sevens. So right, seven sevens is 49 and then you would celebrate on the 50th. So you would have Passover and then you would go seven sevens and then the next day, that, that 50th day, you would celebrate the festival of, of weeks or Pentecost or the festival of first fruits. And they would do the festival of first fruits because this would be the time frame where all of the grain harvest was done. And they would bring to the Lord a share of what they had harvested as a way of saying he did it. He brought this good into our lives. All of that is Pentecost, whether you call it Pentecost, Festival of Weeks, Festival of First Fruits, Festival of the Harvest. It shows up in various ways. It's all taking place right here. Of the three feasts, the three high holy days of the Hebrew calendar, this was the best attended one of all of them. And there were several reasons for that. For all three of them, if you were a Jew living within 20 miles of Jerusalem, you had to go. It was mandatory. It was an obligatory holy day. But for those who lived internationally, who lived farther away, Pentecost fell at the best time of year to travel. 
right around Memorial Day, actually, is where it falls. And so people from all around the Mediterranean, the winds were fair to, to sail. And so this day, more than any other holy day in Jerusalem, would receive the largest international crowd who would ever converge upon the city. Because they would come in May, come in May and June for Pentecost, and they would remain to the summer, and then they would catch the late summer winds on the way back home. So at Pentecost, you have every Jew within 20 miles of Jerusalem. Then you have uh, the larger number of international Hebrews that would travel because of, of the time of year it was. And then you would also have uh, new converts and, and proselytes of Judaism, people interested in Judaism or coming to the Jewish faith. If you were going to convert to Judaism, one of the things you had to do was bring an offering to the temple. So on Pentecost, that's the kind of crowd that you have coming. I'm going to show you a picture. This is a modern-day picture of Pentecost. Obviously, it's a modern-day picture. I don't have an old (laughs) picture of Pentecost. That's the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall of the Temple Mount. So that crowd, that is the Pentecost crowd worshiping. You would imagine in the time of Christ or at this Pentecost in Acts 2, all of those people would be up on top of the mount because that's where the temple would have been. But you would still ha- you should still assume this sort of turnout for this day. There's one other thing I'd like us to think just as far as this particular day. And that is what happened the last time everybody gathered in Jerusalem. So 50 days earlier, it was a fairly remarkable Passover. I mean, Palm Sunday was 50-some days earlier, 54 days ago, something, 56 days. A few months before this, the entire city was turned out on the road into Jerusalem, laying down their cloaks and palm fronds, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, a few months before this, people were saying the Messiah, the promised one of the Jewish people, was coming and was here. About 60 days ago, there was a man named Lazarus who was raised from the dead right outside of the city of Jerusalem, and everybody was talking about it. In fact, the high priests were trying to subdue the story. The high priests were plotting on how to take Lazarus out because of the amount of commotion that Lazarus was giving to this Messiah figure. About 50-some days ago, this city murdered an innocent man in a big commotion. 50-some days ago, the sky darkened for like three hours. The earth shook. The curtain of the temple tore in two. The dead were claimed to have risen from their graves and were walking about. I mean, the last time that everyone was in Jerusalem, you know, it's Jerusalem at Passover, and then it empties out. And then two months later, it fills back up. Or 50 days later, it fills back up again. Last time it was full... A lot happened. In Luke chapter 23, it describes the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And when it says it, it says that the sun refused to, sh- failed to shine. It darkened for about three hours. And 
it says that the crowd or the throng of people who had gathered, the big mob of people who had just surrounded the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that they walked away beating their breasts. In, in other words, there was this realization sort of on the sobriety that comes up after everything is done. There was this sober realization that it had been an evil day. That was last time. Last time Jerusalem was full. I mean, I just think if I was a boy in a boat on the Mediterranean going, going to Jerusalem for my first Pentecost and asking my dad and the rumors that would be a buzz about it. I mean, for the past 40 days, the rumor has been that this man who was buried is resurrected. There's been sightings of Jesus. And you're coming to this. I would be excited. I don't think it would just be an average Pentecost. And an average Pentecost is still a holy day full of people. Let's think about it one step deeper. Let's reflect uh, in order to project here. Pentecost was called the festival of first fruits or the festival of the harvest because this was the day to give thanks to the Lord for what he had given. That's why people are here. When you would come to Jerusalem, you would bring with you some, some loaves of bread because God had given the great, God is the God of the harvest. Now just imagine that. At the end of chapter two, which we'll get to eventually, at the end of chapter two, at the 3,000 people are going to be added to the number this day. Okay? Peter's going to preach. The Holy Spirit's going to work and 3,000 people are going to come to the Lord on this day. On the day of harvest, this is going to happen. On the day of harvest, 3,000 people are going to be harvested up. Just imagine if you were one of the apostles. The significance. All your life you've been reflecting on God bringing the harvest. God bringing the harvest. God bringing the harvest. You've been ref- that's been your reflection. And now you realize what the Holy Spirit does through us. You, things in my mind would be like when Jesus would sit right outside. You, the fact that Sean mentioned the woman at the well. He says to the disciples right then, look out, don't you see the grain? The harvest is rich and plentiful, but the workers are few. Pentecost also served another role. If Passover equals salvation, you know, that's the role of Passover. We were slaves in Egypt, but God rescued us out. That's Passover. So I was a slave, and I've, now I've been rescued. That's Passover. Pentecost serves a different function. I was saved at Passover, but God has provided for me at Pentecost. He's my provision. The, the promise to the Hebrews was a big promise. And in that promise, there were two sides of it. There was salvation and there was provision. I will rescue you from Pharaoh, salvation. But I will bring you into a land, a rich land of milk and honey, provision. To a people who for 400 years have been slaves and could not farm for themselves, a God of provision is something. To people who've never had their own land, who wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, 
provision means something to people who had to be shepherds because since they were landless, the only places they could go are the places you could not till. They had to, they had to pursue an occupation that could survive in the barren places. To them, provision matters. For God to place a people in a land so that they can sow and reap their own crops is the Lord's way of saying, I have fulfilled my promise to you. God didn't promise just to save us. He promised to fill us. I just wonder about the apostles as I pick a nameless apostle like Bartholomew. I guess he's not nameless. I mean a minor one. As he's laying his head down at the end of this day with 3,000 people added to the number, you know, maybe he's laying next to his wife and she says, that's a mighty harvest. And he just thinks, and this, what a mighty provision the Holy Spirit is. It's a really important day. So let's go ahead and look at it. Let's look in Acts 2. <clears throat> We're just going to start this day together and we'll finish it on next Sunday. Acts 2, verse 1. I'll go ahead and read the first several verses. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This paragraph's very descriptive. And most of the description is Holy Spirit language. There's a lot of Holy Spirit phrases in here. So by the end of the paragraph, we know they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So it just comes out and says it. But prior to that, you have a rushing wind. That's Holy Spirit language. The root word for spirit and wind are the same. So, Numa. From heaven is a Holy Spirit idea. The heavens and the earth, the spirit realm and the material realm. So this, this wind is coming, this spirit wind is coming from the spirit place and then it looks like a tongue of fire. And in the Old Testament, fire is a Holy Spirit word. So when, the, when Moses finds the Lord the first time at the bush, the bush is burning when Elijah prays, God sends fire from the sky to immolate the altar. There's notions of fire that surface regularly in the Old Testament as the presence of God's power or his spirit, which is pretty much the same word in the Hebrew. In other words, this little paragraph is cramming almost all of the spirit language or the spirit ideas from the Old Testament. It's balling them up and it's sticking them in this room. The spirit has come. It's, it's descriptive enough that it's the miraculous nature is, of course, mysterious, but the reality of it isn't. The Spirit has come. And the Spirit does something. The Spirit enables them to speak in various languages or tongues. Exactly how this works, it's, we're not exactly clear. Right? Are they, you know, is the person speaking like they would normally speak and it's sounding like another language? Or did God give them the knowledge of a language? It's not entirely clear. It's clearly miraculous. And here's what happens. Let me read 5 through 13. 
Here's why the Spirit does this. It says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and said, They're filled with new wine. So you can hear that, you can see what an international day it is, right? Jews from all over the world are here. And these Jews from all over the world who are here are hearing the truth of God in their normal tongue, their normal language, their heart language. Some have wondered, why is this even necessary? Some have said, well, the truth is probably most, most everybody there could speak either Aramaic or Greek or some version of Hebrew. After all, why would you go to worship in Jerusalem if you, if you didn't have some familiarity with that language? But there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference between having the kind of a working use of Aramaic so, so you could get around Jerusalem and you know, order your falafel and uh, go to temple. There's a big difference between being, being able to make it in a city with kind of the trade language and hearing the truth of God in your language. Huge difference. I remember once I was in Burkina Faso and it was one of those movie nights that Sean spoke about. And uh, I'm standing back with the pastor and this girl, he tells me that this girl had run up to him. We were watching the Jesus movie. And in the Jesus movie, it's been translated into Moray. In other words, the voiceovers are in Moray. Now, you should know, no one, Moray is not a strategic language because the people of Burkina Faso are not a strategic people. They're not valued by the world as having any kind of real significance you're never going to go to a college that offers you moray because there's no advantage in this world from learning moray. There's an advantage of the moray people in learning French or English, not the other way around. So the Jesus movie in their language says something. And this little girl comes up to the pastor and says to him, I did not know that Jesus spoke moray. That's, that's what's happening here. It's not about what you can understand. It's about your heart language. And God is meeting you in your heart language. You are strategic to him. You do matter to him. He's coming for us. That's what's happening here. In fact, this story sits kind of right up against, if, if you look way back in scripture, it, way back in Genesis 11, there's the story of the Tower of Babel. It's an old story where it says at this time in the world, all the people were united under one language. They were they were together. There was human solidarity in Genesis 11. 
and they were united against God. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a monument to ourselves that rises up to the heavens. And the Lord saw it, and he was dismayed when he saw it, and he scattered them, right? He confused their tongues, and he scattered them across the land. This story sits as almost the Lord's way of reaching back and harvesting the people he had scattered. That's what's happening here. Nonetheless, you have these naysayers in 13. It's a sad statement to be one of the few people who can't understand anything the apostles are saying. Just think about that. Every one of those languages being heard and you hear gibberish? Or you just want to mock them? They're drunk. Either way, in verse 12, there is this question. What does this all mean? Why is this happening? And to answer that, Peter, Peter gets up to preach and he's going to quote the prophet Joel. So let me read the next section here and, uh, and we'll talk about it a little bit. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. He's saying, how can we be drunk? It's nine in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So now he's quoting Joel and he says this. And in the last days it shall be. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and on your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below Blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now we'll stop there for today as far as our reading goes. But what is the meaning behind this? What does this all mean? And to that, Peter rises, Peter stands up, and he, his explanation of what all this means comes from the, the writings of the prophet Joel about what he would call the last days. That's verse 17, the last days. And in the last days it shall be, God declares. Now, I just want us to think about this phrase, the last days. When do the last days come? Do they come before the first days or after the first days? Right? Just, this is, these are easy questions, but I'm going somewhere. Right? The last days come after first days. In fact, they come after the middle days too. Right? The last days come at the end. In fact, what comes after the last days? The end. 
in, in, the, in the words of Joel, the great day of the Lord. That's the end. That's verse 20. The day of the Lord, the great and magnificent day. So you have first days, and then you have middle days, and then you have last days, and then you have the end, the great day of the Lord. So if Pentecost is the last days, when are we? We'll come back to that. Let's talk about what will happen in the last days. So how do we know it's the last days? Well, the prophet Joel says, this is how you know it's the last days. The Spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh. Okay, at one level, this means all kinds of people. It gives great significance to the fact that it's happening on the most international day in Hebrew history, that it's pouring out on people from all around the world. In fact, as Peter is preaching and his words are being heard or translated into many different languages right there in the very moment, the truth of Joel is, being, is taking place. The Spirit of God is falling on ears of all flesh. So at one level, it's, you might think it's all flesh is in humanity, but it also goes on to describe in verses 17 and 18. Men and women, young and old, slave and free. So not just different kinds of people, but all kinds of those different kinds. Just like Paul would say elsewhere, in Christ there's neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. The Spirit of God is going to be given to humanity in the last days. There, right, the people are watching this going, what is happening? And Peter's saying, God told you in the last days he's going to pour his Spirit out, and it's happening. What else would we see in the last days? We'd see wonders. This is verse 19 and 20. All sorts of things will happen. Well, we know this. Already today there was this mighty rushing wind, which I think was the reason they all gathered. Verse 12 makes it seem like that they, the people were, or excuse me, verse, uh, verse 5 and 6, it says, at the sound the multitude came together. So this rushing wind, I think, must have been a, a great sound. But I, either way, you've had this rushing wind and the spirit power of this day, but just two months ago with the death and resurrection of Christ, you had shaking ground, opening tombs, dark skies. There had not been a 50-day window like this in their lifetime. They're in the last days. The sermon that Peter's going to preach, and we'll, we'll work through it next week, but the sermon he's going to preach is beginning with the notion that the Holy Spirit has been given to us because we are in the last days. To which I would say, well, when are we? If he's in the last days, well, when are we? I would think we have to be in the last days. Also, which raises all sorts of questions. What does it mean that we're in the last days? Should we expect a rushing wind and tongues of fire and the empowerment to utter all kinds of languages? Is that what we should expect? I would say something from maybe to no, I don't think so. 
New chapters in life often have really significant and ceremonial beginnings. You know, when you, if you got married, if you've ever been to a wedding, a lot of energy being put into a wedding, a lot of energy being put into one day so that one day can mark that tomorrow is going to be very different than yesterday. You're like, to get married, you're in the last days. Uh, you know, there's before, before it, right? And, and the ceremony is righteously ceremonial to mark it. So you invite everyone you know to come to acknowledge that I am no longer that, I am that. Things are forever changing from here to there. I think Pentecost is playing into that. The, the high ceremonial nature of the beginning of a new era. We are in the last days. But in a, in a marriage, every day is not a wedding day. Right? It calms down. You get your marriage, you get your, your honeymoon out of the way, and then things settle down. And that doesn't invalidate the marriage, does it? It doesn't betray the marriage. And you might look and say, well, wait a second. Where's all the pomp and circuit? Where's the dresses and the flowers and the cake? Where is all of that? And, the, and someone would say, well, that was nice. That was very important as a commemorative role, as inaugurating the marriage. But that's not essentially what the importance of the marriage. It's the same thing with the Holy Spirit at this particular day in Pentecost. I think this was just wonderfully remarkable to mark how things are different now. But I wouldn't necessarily expect to see this. I would, however, expect to see the deeper things promised. So if I went to a wedding of a friend and I saw flowers and dresses and, and cakes and nice venue and tons of money being poured out to make it look right, if I saw that, and uh, three years later, I have dinner with my friend, and I don't see the flowers. It's fine, right? I don't see the cake. That's fine. I don't see fancy outfits. Doesn't bother me at all. If I don't see love, something's wrong. Something's forfeit. If I don't see union, something's forfeit. If I see uh, a heart that's reaching back towards singleness, something's forfeit. We intuitively know what we, want to, what we should expect to continue to find and what we don't expect to find. And I think this is likely true of, and I'm just trying to help us sort out, if we are in the same last days, what should we expect to see? And I would say, I don't think I need to see the same sort of miraculous things all the time. I don't think I need to see that. I worship a God who can do that. So he can do whatever he wants to do. He's God. I don't think I need to see it. It doesn't make the Holy Spirit forfeit. But I do think I should expect to see the same kind of harvesting God that we see here. The same God who's swooping down to earth to pull people to himself. And what I mean is this. I may not need to look as miraculous as long as his nature, the nature of the Spirit, is still pushing itself through our lives. So you tell me, what's more miraculous? One day where Peter gets to speak in a lot of languages, is that more miraculous than this? Someone who graduates college and because of God's pressure on his heart devotes himself to learn a non-strategic language 
of an unremarkable people that no one else cares about ever, and he travels and devotes his life to learning it, to compiling them for them the only first written language so that they can have the word of God in their language so that they can now know the love of God. Which is more miraculous? Does a miracle have to be glitzy and fast? Can't it be slow? It astounds me when I see what people will do when they're committed to the Holy Spirit in subtle ways of longevity and calmness and in peace. Now, I'm certainly not trying to outlaw Pentecost, but I'm, not, I'm most importantly not trying to invalidate the days in which you live as though they are non-spiritual days. You are in the last days. We are in the last days. And the very same Spirit has been poured out upon us. And the very same Spirit is trying to harvest and to be the provision of mankind. And he's working through us to do it. I think that when we typically preach or listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we get the salvation part pretty right. What Jesus did, his death, his resurrection. And we talk about salvation fairly accurately, about faith in Jesus Christ, being justified and made righteous through the work of Jesus Christ. Boy, we hammer that, at least I'd like to hope we do, we hammer that fairly clearly, fairly often. But 50 days later is the other part. The perfect number of sevens, the perfect number, the number of jubilee in the fullness of time is this other one, which is in addition to being saved, you have been filled by your provider. Your provision has been met by the God of the harvest. And he's filled you up so that you can, you can harvest the real wheat that matters, the real grain, right? Souls, you can harvest souls. As I close this in prayer, I, wanna, I want you to think about areas in your life where fear takes over. Where all of, all of who you have a sense God wants you to be is sort of challenged by fear or apprehension. And I, I want to... I want to impress upon you, you have the God of provision. You have a spirit who is more than enough in those areas. But it's not, it's not enough for us just to talk about salvation. We're like a Christian who never had Pentecost. These days are held together Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we ask you in the grace and the knowledge that your Holy Spirit is here and that you've taken up residence in us. Lord, to all who call out to Jesus, we can trust that we have your Spirit residing in us, Lord. And so we come to you in that notion uh, with a heart. I pray, Lord, I pray a heart to do your will. First of all, Lord, we pray that you would give us a genuine heart to actually say and mean, thy will be done. 
And then, Lord, a, a heart bold enough and courageous enough to trust that you have equipped us with what we need, not just individually, but corporately, that the fellowship, the assembly of believers has been equipped by the Holy Spirit to do your will. Lord, that we would live in the conviction that you have not only saved us, but you've raised us up to harvest. It's our prayer, Lord, that we would live a life full of faith in Christ and reliant on your spirit. For we live in your last days. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.